0: Alone.
1: Alone. 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 Alone.
0: Alone. With Peter. Welcome to Alone with Peter. I'm your host and on this podcast. You're going to hear interviews with entrepreneurs, artists, digital nomads, and people seeking personal growth. We'll dive deep into what set them on their journey, where they are now, and how their story can impact you, including any helpful insights if you aspire to take a similar leap of faith. No matter where you are on your journey, thank you for spending some quality time Alone with Peter. On today's episode of Alone with Peter, I am really excited to speak with Tanner Combius. He is the owner of Hostelmate and you can find him at hostelmate.app, on Instagram at tennis underscore then underscore travel, and at his blog, Tennis and Travel. Tanner has been working in the world of finance for a long time now. He has five years of experience working at one of the big four accounting firms in New York City, PwC. We'll talk to him about that, his degree in finance and master's in accountancy, as well as his expertise in value companies and consulting, he spent over a year playing competitive tennis at tennis academies in Florida, and he's traveled around the world and visited over 70 hostels from 2019 to 2020. If you want to travel, if you want to know how to travel on a budget, if you want to know how to be smarter with your money in general, you're not going to want to miss this interview with Tanner Combius. And Tanner, I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about corporate America, travel, tennis, and a whole lot more.
1: Awesome. Thank
0: you, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. This has been a long time coming. Um, I want to give the backstory really quickly of how we met. Uh, I was living in South Korea in 2019, and towards the end of my time there, I decided to take a trip to Vietnam, and that's where you and I met serendipitously a lot of the people that I have on the show are people that I met traveling. And I think there's something that can be said for that. You know, you meet really interesting people when traveling and I think you've got a really interesting story, but uh, (laughs) do you want to give a little, you want to give a little backstory of how we know each other from your perspective? I've told you mine. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Uh, Well, I agree with you. I mean, some of the best people that I, I met and that I've ever met were, were on my travels. And honestly that's the my favorite part about traveling even more than seeing a a new place and uh, you know even a new culture the the best part is meeting new people from from all all walks of life Uh, so yeah I mean I remember I think it was in it was in January right after Christmas and I I flew into Hanoi and uh, didn't sleep for probably 24 hours that long journey and trip to the hostel and, and there you were
0: <laughs> where were you before that you been because you had been traveling around for a while already
1: yeah that's right I well I was traveling around a lot but I was also insane and had made the promise to my parents to come back for Christmas which really didn't <laughs> make any sense so it's your point I remember it was it was quite silly I had spent three weeks of Thailand, and then I flew home for Christmas, <laughs> hung with the family, and then caught a flight back because I decided I needed to see Southeast Asia, and Thailand wasn't going to cut it as the only country in that, that region.
0: Dude, so, that is so much flying in a very <laughs> short amount of time. Yeah.
1: And I know this podcast is about your budget, and that is a situation where it wasn't necessarily the best
0: move. Just a disclaimer: that's not the best way to spend your money no. necessarily. There's probably a more efficient way to spend your money, but at the same time, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, right? No, I'm, sure right. I'm sure your family yeah. appreciated it.
1: No, you're you're spot on there, and we'll get into it more. But I mean, when you when you save your money, it gives you the ability to to do that kind of stuff. That that is yeah. important.
0: Yeah, I am really excited to talk about that part of it, actually. I think there's an unfortunate mindset that has been developed in the US and just in general in consumer culture about how to, what money does for you, how you should use money, uh, what you should do with money when you don't have it. Um, And I'm definitely a firm believer in not spending what you don't have, even if you're broke. And it's pretty hard sometimes, you know it's it's hard to know how to spend your money. So I want to talk about your backstory. We're, this is going to be kind of a hero's journey arc we're going to be going through with you here, Tanner. And I, I you might smirk a little bit at the idea of a hero's <laughs> journey, but I really believe everybody has this you' if you listening to the podcast this is not the first time you've heard me say this. I think we all have this hero's journey. You know, our past impacts our present and it forms our future. So who you are is impacted greatly by how you grew up and, and the th- lessons you learned and the skills you attained from that. And so I really want to be able to kind of paint this macro to micro picture so that by the end of all this, people can see, oh, that's why this is the guy, this is why he is who he is. Um, as much as I can do that in an hour and a half with you. So I thought maybe we could start with Big Aspirations, Small Pockets, because I read on your bio on Tennis Then Travel that you saved every penny you possibly could since you were eight years old. Can you tell me what that is about? Not just anybody saves money from the age of eight years old.
1: Yeah, it, I was a little ridiculous as a child, but it's definitely, it's definitely true. I'm not lying. Uh, I have always saved every penny since I was super young. And it definitely has a lot to do with, with my upbringing. I mean, I would honestly walk down the street with my head down looking for change. It, I, it was crazy. Uh, and I, I think, you know, my dad's a financial advisor. So, you know, he is always talking about saving and, and spending and investing your money and uh, living within your means. And so that definitely influenced me and I, I think I learned from him, but, you know, I learned about compounding interest and and just how a little investment today can turn into a very large sum of money in the long term. And so it's very powerful, compounding and investing young. It's super powerful. And uh, I kind of became obsessed with it. So, yeah, I saved every single penny I could. and. I didn't really know what I was going to do with that money. I always wanted to have this money. You know what I think it was is I wanted to be able to do whatever I wanted. And that was what I was saving for.
0: Literally at the age of eight years. old. Eight years old, you were wanting to save money for so you could you could have the freedom to do what you wanted to do. That's not the typical mindset of an eight-year-old. Uh, do you think a lot of that has to do with just watching your dad and how he dealt with his money? Like, how did your family talk about money growing up?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that it does have to do with where we come from. I mean, my dad, he started his own small company and definitely took a risk. And, you know, we we had money growing up. Like, he did well, but in the beginning, when he just started, we definitely were especially frugal. And even today, after he's been very successful, you know, he's still he's still frugal. And that definitely rubbed off on me, I, I think positively. But also, yeah, I guess we didn't talk about money that much, but definitely never just gave us money. Like if we wanted to go buy something, he wouldn't just like hand us money. That, that was not happening. Uh, that was out of the question. Uh, we were given a small allowance I remember it was based on what grade you were in school, and in order to earn that allowance, which could easily be deducted or rescinded, to, if you didn't complete your chores or didn't behave properly. I remember got the deductions for like not putting your napkin on your lap. It was like oh yeah, there's a deduction, and that and they knew that that cut me to my core. Like I was, I was, I wanted
0: every penny. So that experience of the deductions and and pushbacks and stuff what did that what does that? what did that teach you as a kid do you ever think about that now what was the real lesson that was coming across to you
1: I don't know uh I don't know what the real lesson was I guess it was smart on my dad's part because he knew how important money was to me <laughs> and then he also knew... No but it's true like when you're trying to get someone to but to act a certain way or behave properly, like figure out what makes them tick. Right. And, uh, but I think that it had more consequences than he even expected. Like the the point was, you know, teach us like to earn our money, to work hard and earn money for the work you get, you, you, you've done not to just get handed money, but also like, you know, he was trying to get us to behave in a gentleman, you know, behave properly, well mannered, but, um, yeah, I think I think it was smart. It definitely, it definitely taught me to uh, value hard work and uh, earning your money.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's also I just it just makes me laugh. It's because I because you're not a Scrooge McDuck, but you are very frugal with your money. So it's funny for me to hear you talk about that part of it. It it, it also makes me wonder if you know, that experience of your dad saying, oh, well, you didn't do that right. Here's the consequence. You know, that's a very real world thing that people need to learn. And I just wonder how much that impacts impacted you. That idea that like whatever you choose to do, it's going to change, well, how much money you can make, but also like there will be repercussions or, or benefits from doing this. I just wonder, like eight-year-old, ten-year-old uh, Tanner. Clearly, you had a very strong impact from something there that you would be trying to save money and build compound interest at ten years old with the Quicken Loans account.
1: It's hard to put my finger on exactly what the trigger was, right? Because you know, I had I had a brother and a sister, and I think that they appreciate and understand the value of a dollar and hard work, but they don't. They're not kind of as freakish about it as as I am, uh, like I had a a Quicken account, you know, I was, my dad, I think I was eight years old and my dad set me up on Quicken. And, you know, Quicken's different. Today we have apps and stuff where you can just put in everything you save, everything you spend. But back then have this antiquated program where you would make journal entries and I would write, I found $10 on the ground and there are hundreds of journal entries in my Quicken. So, that was just kind of absurd and I don't know if it was one thing or yeah, I'm not sure what triggered it. Definitely I think your point about the way that my dad did the allowance and the deductions and the consequences definitely impacted me. Starting his own business, starting with nothing, definitely him not just giving us money, not being able to buy what we want, all that impacted us. So I think that that drove it all. But I'm glad to hear you say, I know you mentioned there that I I'm not I don't give off that impression that I'm super stingy because I I tell myself that like I try I don't want my friends to ever think that. Like, you know, if I go out to dinner with my friends, I never gonna want to be the guy I want to be the first guy who pays around. I wanna I i never want them to even think of Tanner's being cheap ever. And then often myself I'm being ridiculous. You know, I'm walking 20 blocks <laughs> instead of instead of like, you know, getting a cab or something or, or running running at five in the morning from a club home for an hour through London. You
0: know. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way, except for the thing is, I don't have money either. So, like, <laughs> I, I, you have two siblings, I have seven. So, you know, wow. I grew up in an environment where if I wanted something, I definitely had to get a job and I had to go earn it. And so, there was a certain level of that impacting me as well. If I want something, I need to earn it somehow because it's not going to be given to me. And then the other part, I think, was, um, <clears throat> just that, like, I wasn't very materialistic. I, you know, I I didn't mind that I was getting hand-me-downs from my siblings. I was used to doing road trips instead of, you know, flying. I never went to Disneyland as a kid, you know, but those were not negative things to me, and that part of it has really stuck with me. And, and to your point, it really has a lot to do, not just with your family, but also you as an individual, because I'm not very materialistic, But I have a brother who's a sommelier and he makes a lot of money and he likes to eat. He likes to dress well and drink really nice wine and stuff. And I don't not like that stuff, but I do not have access to that kind of stuff. It's not as important to me. Yeah. No, that's it. That's a good point. I think that it makes me wonder for you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your childhood was like because, you know, I'm getting this picture of an eight year old looking for money on the ground and you know, trying to get, like, compound interest, but I'm sure there was more to Tanner and Combius at 8, you know, 10, 15 years old than just, like, putting a magnifying glass to the ground and looking for coins, right? Yeah. Like, what else was it like?
1: Well, uh, so I kind of agree with you that I'm not materialistic either, and I like money. I like, I like money a lot, but I... I think it, the act of earning it always always meant way more to me than the money itself, which I don't know if that's weird or not, but I mean, I remember my, my first paying job was I was 12 and I was working for a landscaper and he was paying me $2 an hour to dig holes and I didn't care. I was happy. I got that first check. It was $24 and I was pumped. I mean, so... <laughs> I don't know if that tells you more about me, but uh, twelve yeah. hours of hole digging. Yeah, I was yeah, and now I was willing to do whatever it took to to earn money. Uh, and it wasn't to buy something fancy. It, it, it was to give me that freedom to do whatever I wanted. But it was more the the act of earning that got me excited. <laughs>
0: Freedom, excitement, and the act of earning. If you've been inspired by this interview with Tanner Combeas or previous episodes in the season two of Alone with Peter, I would love to hear from you on my Instagram. If you aren't already, follow me at Aloma Peter and let me know what you think of the show. I'm always trying to make little tweaks to make this a better show for you because at the end of the day, I want to interview people who inspire you and who help you become the version of yourself that you are meant to be. Thanks for tuning in for Aloma Peter. And let's get back to our interview with Tanner Combias. After high school, you went off to study accounting and finance. Mm <laughs> hmm and you ended up ultimately finding a job with PWC, which is a pretty big deal, I would say. I know you told me, it doesn't really feel like it's that big of a deal, but after talking to other people, it sounds to me like if you get a job with one of the big four, you can get a job anywhere after that. It's like kind of sets you in a certain tier of people. So for someone who is not from accounting, Why is that a big deal? And what is the big four? And what was it like working for PwC? There's a lot of questions in a row.
1: Yeah, that was a lot. Um, So first, yeah, I guess the first thing you said where it is a big deal. Yeah, sometimes I downplay it because I went to a very good accounting school. So I went to Wake Forest and we had a very good reputation and the big four sought us out. Uh, we had the highest passing rate on the CPA exam in the country. That's the you know the Certified uh, Public Accountant. To me, you know, in college, the Big Four wasn't a, that big of a deal, but it is a big deal, and it does set you up your right. So the Big Four, it's the four largest accounting firms in the world, and they are much larger than any of the smaller firms below them. All any of the regional firms, they're huge. They're massive. They're in every city, and they operate in many different sectors uh, provide many different services and it does set you up in that it gives you a good background it's it's a very professional environment you're always working on teams you learn about companies from the bottom up often so often you're digging into a company and you're really trying to understand what makes it tick how they earn their money how they spend their money you really really get to learn about companies and so after working, uh, you know, I'll talk to a lot of people, and a lot of them did start at one of the big four firms. Uh, which, you just list them: it's it's PwC or Price Waterhouse, EY, which is Ernst and Young, uh, KPMG, and Deloitte. So those are the big four, and the other ones are those. The regional firms are great too. It's just these are just significantly larger and have the reputation.
0: At Wake Forest, to use a metaphor, did you feel like? a big fish in a small pond? Did you feel like a small fish in a big pond? What was that environment like? Because he told me a little bit about it almost felt Ivy League in that the big four are coming to you and whining you and dining you. So what was that like for you going to school in that environment and competing against other people in that environment for a lucrative job as, you know, a 22-year-old? Yeah, it was different. It was intense and competitive
1: Uh, because we had such a good reputation. We were lucky and we had really good teachers and they tested us extremely hard so that when the CPA came along, it it, it was nothing for us. Um, So it it was super intense and competitive. And when they came to interview us all and we're all lined up waiting our turn, you know, it, it, it was competitive, but because, there's a need for accountants, right? And because we had that reputation, it was nice because you knew that the guy next to you could get a very good job. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't preclude you from also getting a a good job. Um, I specifically was trying to, I always try to make things more complicated than they need to be. So not only did I do accounting, but I also did finance. And there are only, I think there are five of us in in my grade who, both majors, which was just kind of ridiculous. Um, I just remember like junior fall was the hardest finance semester, then junior spring was the hardest accounting semester, and I I, I almost couldn't take it anymore. Um, but yeah, no, I, I always make things harder than they need to be. So, yeah, where I was going down, so when I applied, not only did I, so in accounting, you know, the biggest, the, the most job openings are for audit, and so. That's when you are reviewing financial statements for public companies primarily, but also private companies and and uh, digging through and making sure that the numbers of their report are accurate. And then there's tax, which is which is huge too, um, helping out with you know companies taxes. But there are also a lot of other groups. And many of these groups at the big four, other firms like you start out in audit or tax and you try to prove yourself and get into those groups. And I just trying to always, you know, make things harder and try to go for the next level. I was like, I don't, I want to go straight into one of these other groups uh, and not, not pay my dues (laughs) in, in, in auditor tax. So I went into the deals team where they worked on uh, deals, buying companies, selling companies, uh, maybe a company wants to get listed on the public stock uh, stock exchange and we'd help out. Or maybe they have complex accounting. I, I mean, I don't want to bore you, but...
0: Was this different- when you were working at PwC already or is this when you were in university? So this was,
1: so this was when I was in university. When I was in university, I applied specifically for one of those more specific groups. And they were only taking maybe one person to New York maybe one person to Boston and, and you know, 30 people were going to do to audit and 30, 40 people were going to tax. And so
0: that's So made you're it choosing the harder. more challenging position where it's like, you're literally your chances of getting in are going to be very much lower.
1: Yeah. It was definitely
0: harder to get into that right away. You could definitely prove yourself and get in there
1: later on down the, down the road. But yeah, it was harder, but that it hadn't an to me uh, that kind of stuff because of the, the hybrid, the finance aspect of a lot of those deals excited me. And so I could combine, you know, what I had learned in, in, in school. And it's nice because you actually leave university your senior year spring and you do an internship at the company that you've got an offer at. And hopefully you don't mess it up, but there's a great chance they'll give you the job after it. But it's a nice way to like see what you're getting yourself into and earn a little bit of money. Uh, And then we come back to school for the fifth year and do a year to get our master's. And then we already have the job lined up. So that's nice.
0: So tell me, you said that you like to do things harder. What is it about, I don't imagine it's doing things harder just to do something harder. What is it that do you have like some, goal in mind like this is going to help me do this later on or I'm just trying to test my ability what is it that's driving you to choose the harder path
1: yeah that's that's a good question I think two answers there I think that I'm always trying to prove prove it to myself that I can accomplish something even if it's very difficult and I think the second thing would be, especially in this scenario where I did, you know, double major trying to get, you know, a job that's a little bit more selective is that it's hard when, when you don't know what you want to do, I always want to keep my options open. And sometimes I think that forces me to do the more difficult thing, or maybe I don't need to do that, but I I didn't really know whether I wanted to just do accounting or just do finance. How about I
0: do both? Uh, you don't want to limit yourself, is what it sounds like. You want to keep your options open.
1: Yeah, that's very fair. And then when I went to PwC, of course, I was in a group, and I was like, you know, what? I'm going to try to do this group and this. You know, like I, I always, I always try to take it too far. And
0: you, you still find yourself doing that? I
1: do, I do, but it's a good segue into maybe later, like you know. Get people excited about the the other the, the
0: follow up podcast. No, I think there's a lot going on here. I want to touch on one more thing because I want people to get an idea of what this corporate America firm experience was like for you. I want to hear first of all how that work experience shaped you in some positive ways. Uh, maybe how it changed the way you look at money, and then I'd also love to hear what are some of the negative parts about it because you ended up leaving. And I hear that a lot. Every hostel I've been into, I met somebody who's like, yeah, I worked in corporate um, and it was killing me. And I'm only 30 years old, but I feel like I'm 50. And so that's why I'm traveling for an entire year because I was dying. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that story from three, four, five, at least four different people, if not more. So not I, I don't know how much of that you feel that way about working in corporate america but i get this feeling that it's a rat race there's always a lot of competition you're always trying to prove yourself and for someone like you who is very focused and clearly trying to choose the harder path i it sounds like it probably had a very formative nature for you but also i'd love to hear the the positives and the negatives i guess
1: yeah so to start off disclaimer like i working at Price Waterhouse in New York was a a good experience. And I am glad that I had that under my belt. Uh, I, the the connections I made there are fantastic. And I still maintain relationships with a lot of people that I worked with. Um, I'm lucky they, they asked me to come back sometimes. And that's, that's, it feels good to, to get that, to get that question sometimes. Um, But yeah, I mean, Living in that world, it is a rat race. And, but there's something about that I love. There's something about going to New York and waking up in the morning and taking the subway and everyone's just had their head down and they're power walking with their cases, And like you look around and you're like, yeah, I'm in it. Like I'm a part of this. Uh, So I don't know. I kind of thrived. I was kind of pumped about that. Uh, Like I was absurd. Like to your point, like I didn't know how to shut off. So I would go to the office and I lived at the office, like, I, and I didn't mind it. Like, I would, I'd be, the last, I'd be there shutting the lights off. Me. Like, it was stupid. Um I brought cereal and I had it, like, in the pantry. I would, like, make my own cereal in the morning. Everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, it's your kitchen. <laughs> I used a little, like, the little creamer,
0: you know, those little <laughs> <things>? <laughs> know. But, little creamer I, packets for your cereal? I just ate a little ones for my cereals. <laughs> That's so <laughs> unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't use the cream. With the oh same my idea. gosh. Oh, okay. Well, at least it's not the creamer creamer. No, no, <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> But yeah. So, I mean, I loved it and I, I love that aspect, but to your point, it does, it, it does push you and it is easy to get burned out. And, and that's what happened. And I think that's what you heard from those other travelers you met. And it's, it's tough when you're especially when you're working client services i don't know if, you have, if they when you when you're working for all these other clients and whatever they need to get done is the most pressing thing in the world and if it doesn't get done
0: everyone's gonna die like it's <laughs> yeah, hard that's a yeah. lot of stress man yeah and when you have yeah. 10 clients. and all like i remember there was a project
1: where i had spent like all night Sometimes I'm a, little, I'm a little slow. I like to take my time. And i spent maybe more time than, than it was needed. But stayed all night, working on something. I finished it, sent it out. I don't know, it was 2.30, 3.00. And when I come home, I wake up, I'm exhausted. And I remember my partner calling me. And I was in the shower. And I remember having my hand outside the shower. And I'm trying to talk to my partner on the phone. And I'm like, this is this is great. It's like 8.30. So <laughs> I only slept for like, four I don't know four hours. Uh, yeah. And uh so there's part of that that I loved and I learned so much about being a professional, working with on a team and then growing. And it's a very good culture to 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 grow and they give you more and more responsibility. So I loved having a team under me. So my last year as a man when I became a manager, I I loved that. Like I loved having a team and I thought that I I brought something to the table by bringing like some, I, I, everyone has weaknesses. I think one of my strengths is bringing out the best in in teams. And that being said, I was tough. Like if, if, I, if they assigned someone to me and they really didn't care enough, I would not be afraid to be like, oh, this person's out. I was a little brutal, but like, once you're on my team, uh, you know, you were in and uh, I were them. So, yeah. So I think, think you know it was twofold there there are positives and negatives to answer your question and I think it it got to the point where I always wanted to be the best at what I did and I enjoyed doing I specifically worked in valuation most of my time and so what I did was I valued anything like you could literally say Tanner you could say can you value this guitar behind me but you could say can you value Alone with Peter the podcast like I could value literally
0: anything i'm kind of scared to know because i think it's gonna be very little um if you try to value this podcast right now right now maybe maybe in like three four months i'll ask you to do that
1: (laughs) it's all about the future cash flows peter so i think there's a lot of future
0: potential for
1: a loan peter so i (laughs) i'm
0: gonna be investing uh, your time um, there you're giving me that at least and that's not nothing no it's it's a great podcast
1: so uh I
0: appreciate I, I you man. I appreciate that. I appreciate uh,
1: that. Yeah, so I I, I worked in valuation mostly. Uh, did some other worked in other groups, diligence, operations, strategy, complex accounting advisory, I don't know. But um, yeah, so I did valuation and I always wanted to do the best of what I did. And obviously I, I wasn't the best as 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 in there for 5 years only, but at my level I tried to perform at the highest I could and it got to the point where I didn't know if I wanted to become a partner and spend 30, 40 years being the best
0: at that. I'm seeing a theme, the the more that I know you and, and doing this research about you as well, that you like to be challenged. You like to have a challenge to feel like there's something that's pushing you to the next level, and you're also a very singularly focused guy. We joked about before this call that you don't even know whether or not your headphones have a mic on them because you can't walk and talk at the same time. <laughs> and I love that because in today's world, it is really there's so many different distractions happening. So I, I tease you about it a little bit, but I I could I could use a little bit more of that singular focus. And I, I think this is a great segue into our next point. I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, your experience with money and stuff, but, but we're going to do that later. Tell me about October 17th. Why is that date significant? And what was the plan you created? October 17th was the day. Was that the day in the blog that I was like, I'm done? Uh, that okay. was when you told me, that's when you said October 17th I'm done. I'm done with corporate America. I'm going to escape and I'm going to do this next thing. Yeah. I am trying to be a little coy here cuz I want you to tell us what I got what it. was happening <laughs> October 17th?
1: Yeah, so I honestly like and as I asked you like I wasn't sure of the exact date cuz like it was it was so like it wasn't brought, up, brought on by anything specific. It was just me sitting at my desk in you know 300 madison or wherever i was in midtown new york and thinking to myself do i want to be the best do i want to stay and do this and try to become a partner or or do i need to take a break from corporate america and and that was the day that i was like no nah, i'm out like i'm young ish i was i was 28 and i, I thought to myself you know it's i my i'm in my prime here like Let's let's quit. And I remember I told it was funny because I told everyone I was quitting, and I gave like super advanced warning. I was like, I'm gonna quit in a few months because I was gonna get uh, my bonus and I had to wait for it. And I, and they were like, oh, good one, Tanner. Like, good joke. Like, we see you staying here for longer. I was like, no, like I don't know how to explain this to you, but like I'm leaving. And everyone was surprised. They thought I'd be there till the end. And uh, so yeah, my dream. One of my dreams was to play competitive tennis and I had grown up playing tennis but never competitively like even in high school I played lacrosse during the same season so I grew up with my family you know, good racket sports in the family good intense competitions amongst family members but you know every family vacation I, I was in charge of packing a tennis bag but it never competitive so I thought how fun would it be to train every day. And and like you said, I'm very singularly focused. And if I could focus on one thing that I love to do and it's play tennis every day, how good could I get? And I had even taught tennis every summer at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a small tennis and sailing club. And so I definitely knew how to swing a racket. Uh, and so that was the plan. It was, I came up with this idea and I, I thought, I'm going to move somewhere where they have very good tennis and I'm going to play tennis and I'm going to train as hard as I possibly can. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to sleep well. Things I wasn't doing currently at work. And I'm going to play tennis and see where I can go. And then I'm going to go travel around the world for a year. So it's like year tennis, year travel, at least a year of travel, and then uh, reassess and maybe come back to corporate America or maybe do my own thing. So that was the October 17th that I think you, you're speaking of.
0: Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's the right one. <laughs> and, and I love that you gave us this quick overview here because we're gonna talk about this more in episode two of our interview with Tanner Combius. And I am so excited, buddy. This is like this is some good stuff because not just anybody goes. Okay, I'm gonna get, what were you making? Sixty thousand a year, something like that. More. You were making pretty good money. The last year, definitely o- over a hundred, definitely. You were making you were making six figures uh, over a hundred thousand dollars and you just said, Hey, I'm gonna leave to go play tennis exclusively. I've never played tennis before in my life, and then I'm gonna go travel the world. Not just anybody picks up and leaves like that. I also can raise my hand in this situation because I did the exact same thing and that's why I think we like each other (laughs) and I, but not everybody's willing to do it, but I think a lot of people can learn from that. So stay tuned for part two of our interview with Tanner. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to dig into this a little deeper. All right, ready? One, two, three. Thank you for tuning in for part one of our interview with Tanner Cumbius. In part two, we'll be exploring more about his experience as a world traveler. In the two years he was traveling after his tennis experience, he was able to go to 16 different countries. And that was just in the two years. Overall, he's been to over 40 different countries now. It's really impressive, especially considering the way he's been able to fund his adventures. So if you wanna hear more about where Tanner has been and how he decided to go there and budget for these sorts of things, we're gonna illustrate what a typical day looks like for him. You know, is he just the king of pinch of pennies or what? Find out on the next episode of Alone with Peter.